From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, keeping an even keel on IOP. The latanoprost seems to be more efficacious in decreasing this IOP range than Timolol is. First this. As seen from here is committed to medical education devoid of hidden industry bias. Dr. Varma is a consultant for Pfizer, Allergan, and Alcon. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. You're following a patient with glaucoma. The patient is below the intraocular pressure goal you have set for him. Fields and HRT are stable, and you are convinced that the patient is compliant with his medications. All is good in the world. Or is it? Is there any other information you need to appropriately manage this patient? Pachymetry? No, you already have that. How about IOP fluctuation? We've heard that higher intraocular pressure fluctuation is associated with glaucoma progression. But do we measure fluctuation? Do we treat fluctuation as its own entity divorced from spot IOP measurement? Should we? Rohit Varma thinks so and has published results from a study showing how it can be done. Rohit, welcome to a scene from here. The prevailing description of glaucoma defines a progressive neuropathy without the prerequisite of any particular intraocular pressure level. If intraocular pressure measured during examination is not the central parameter, what other risk factors are involved in pathogenesis? So there are a whole series of other risk factors which are involved, including age, uh, race, or ethnicity, and importantly, um, I think what it also involves is the range of IOP over the course of a period of time. So not just the one measurement which is obtained when you examine the patient, but multiple measurements which are obtained over a period of time uh, as you're treating the patient or evaluating the patient. And the reason for that is that IOP variation or fluctuation, as it's called at times, um, um, is important in terms of damage to the optic nerve. Now, let me just uh, state clearly that when I speak about fluctuation or variation, what I am speaking about is intervisit IOP range, meaning when you examine a patient multiple times over the course of, say, a year or months, um, the range of IOP, the highest IOP that you record when you see them, minus the lowest IOP that is recorded when that um, individual is seen for that eye. That range, the highest minus the lowest, is what I'm speaking about. And 
Why that's important is because the amount of strain that is introduced on the optic nerve is much greater when the range is greater because it sort of it goes up and down like a trampoline a whole lot more and is more likely to be damaged because of that than if the range were smaller, um, in which case you don't have as much of that trampolining effect and it keeps the nerves and the axons more stable and functioning better. Prior to your study, what was known about the effects that different classes of glaucoma medication have on intraocular pressure fluctuation? What, what is known, what was known uh, prior to that, dealt mainly with 24-hour IOP fluctuation, which is what happens to the IOP over the course of a day, over a 24-hour period. Uh, not much work had been done on this parameter called this intervisit IOP range, and that was a new parameter that um, I introduced um, a year or two, two ago when we reanalyzed some data uh, from one of the trials um, and found it to be an important variable. So there was not much known about the kind of IOP variation that I'm speaking about before our work, but what was known about the 24-hour IOP fluctuation was that prostaglandin analogs were more likely to give a stable intraocular pressure over the course of a 24-hour period as compared to uh, alpha agonists or beta blockers. Um, so uh, that's what was well known um, prior to our work. Um, but again, I just want to be clear that what we're speaking about is intervisit IOP range and not what happens over the course of just a 24-hour period where you have to take multiple measurements hourly, both when the patient is awake and asleep. So, Just to reiterate that point, there are two sorts of intraocular pressure fluctuation that have been dealt with. There's diurnal intraocular pressure fluctuation, that's intraday fluctuation, and there's intervisit fluctuation, and that's the sort that we're going to be dealing with here. Correct. Okay, so let me have you describe the design of your study. First off, the study that um, I'm going to be speaking about is one of three studies which have been published on this issue. Um, and the study that I'm going to be speaking about is what is called as a post hoc analysis, meaning uh, the main trial results have already been presented using standard approaches to looking at the impact of various drugs. And the standard approach usually is what happens to the mean IOP and how much is the mean drop in IOP after a drug is introduced into the eye. Um, what we did was uh, we took two registration trials which were done um, comparing latanoprost to timolol. Um, these were randomized, uh, double-masked um, control trials where we had over 300 patients in each arm, meaning 300 in the 
latanoprost arm and over 300 in the timolol arm. And they, uh, they were washed out initially, meaning that all drug was washed out of their eye for a period of four to six weeks. After that, they were randomly assigned to one of the two drugs. What we did, because Timolol is to be used twice a day and Latanoprost is used only once a day, what we did was we gave the patients who were on Latanoprost a placebo in the morning and the drug in the evening, whereas the Timolol patients got the same drug morning and evening. But because there were separate bottles for each of them, which were sort of uh, uh, masked, uh, the patient did not know whether they were using a drug or a placebo, particularly in the latanoprostone. So um, these these um, individuals who then went on to get these these drugs, um, after that we assessed um, what happened to their pressure um, over a six-month period of time. And the data that we present in our paper looks at what happens at uh, week 18 and week 26 in comparison to baseline measurements of um, intervisit um, IOP range. So that's what, what we um, assessed in the study. How is fluctuation calculated for these patients? It was during the period of time, during the um, 18 and 26-week period, we looked at IOP measurements which were obtained at specific time points, and we took the highest intraocular pressure which was recorded and subtracted from it the lowest intraocular pressure which was recorded. Um, and that gave us the range between the highest and the lowest which was recorded. Um, and what we then did was that we, um, not arbitrarily, but what I did was I picked a value of six millimeters as the cutoff between what is considered high and low. Why I picked six millimeters is essentially it's, uh, three times what is considered to be measurement error. So usually within two millimeters, um, any individual's IOP can be measured with the instrumentation we have. And I wanted to go uh, threefold that so that there would be no question that the people that who have an IOP range of, an intervisit IOP range of six millimeters or more is significantly outside of what may be considered to be measurement error or even normal intervisit IOP range. So it's, it's completely outside of what is considered to be normal. And so that's why I picked the six millimeter cutoff. And so what we did was we divided people into those that had less than six millimeter intervisit IOP range and those that had more than six millimeters intervisit IOP range. Um, and what we found was that at baseline, which is prior to initiation of the drug, there were approximately 22 to 
23% of individuals in both arms of the study, both the latanoprost and timolol arms, there were about 22 to 23% of individuals that had high inter-visit IOP range, meaning that was the percentage of individuals in whom when you took the highest and subtracted the, the lowest IOP in them, um, it was more than six millimeters. Those were the um, individuals that we thought were at, at greatest risk. And so once the drug was introduced in them and we assessed them at weeks 18 and 26, what we found was that the latanoprost arm, the group of individuals who started out with that high intervisit IOP range, which was about 22 to about 23 odd percent, were now down to only about 6%, whereas in the Timolol arm, there were still approximately 11% of individuals that had high intervisit IOP range. And so what that shows us is that latanoprost is more likely to control or more likely to have greater numbers of individuals who may start out with a high intervisit IOP range uh, but then end up with a lower intravisit IOP range as compared to Timolol. And so the latanoprost seems to be more efficacious in controlling or in decreasing this IOP range than Timolol is. Was the difference in intraocular pressure stability between Timolol and latanoprost evident at all time points? Yes. What risk factors correlated in these patients with increased risk of intraocular pressure fluctuation? Right. So people that usually that start out with high intravisit IOP range are, again, more likely to have high intravisit IOP range after treatment. But in addition to that, um, what, what particularly stood out for me was that people who are of um, African origin um, we're also more likely to have high intervisit IOP range. Um, and people who had been diagnosed for a long time also were more likely to have high intervisit IOP range. And what that suggests to me is that these are people who are at greater risk of damage. And we already know that people who are of um, African ancestry um, are more likely to have glaucomatous optic nerve damage, um, not just greater in degree and severity, but also are more likely to have it earlier on in terms of their age, um, and that it is much harder to control IOP in them as well. So, you know, this study seems to um, further uh, support why people of um, African ancestry are more likely to have damage earlier because obviously, you know, so far we have not been assessing this as a parameter, this IOP range, this intervisit IOP range. And it may be that this is one of the more important parameters to keep in mind uh, when one is treating an individual over a 
period of time. So you don't just sort of dismiss uh, it when that pressure is high, meaning you don't just sort of uh, attribute some uh, reason like non-compliance and so on and so forth, which may very well be true, but why, but if you just dismiss that, what happens is that you don't take that, that into account, and that may be one of the most important signs, if you will, of that individual going on to get progressive optic nerve damage. And I think there are uh, there is at least one other study that I know of which is going to show um, evidence of how this intervisit IOP range is clearly a very important parameter in progressive visual field loss. Is there any evidence in prior data, in prior studies, like the XLT study, the Zalatan, Lumigan, Travitan study, of substantial differences between different prostaglandins in suppression of intraocular pressure fluctuation. Right. So we have published in the past a paper looking at the same parameter, intervisit IOP range, um, between the three prostaglandins uh, that are available in the U.S., Zalatan, Lumigan, and Travitan. And uh, Zalatan and Lumigan were um, equally or were comparably able to lower the number of individuals with, inter, with high intervisit IOP range, uh, whereas people who were on Travitan were less likely to have their intervisit IOP range um, reduced, if you will. So, tra- so Travitan, at least using this parameter, um, intervisit IOP range was less efficacious than Zalatan and Lumigan. Rohit, my next questions deal with what to do with these findings. If a patient is meeting your IOP goals on a topical beta blocker, do you switch the patient to a prostaglandin or do you wait for evidence of field progression or optic disc progression before doing so? What I'm going to say is my opinion of it, and my opinion is guided by what evidence I've seen. So what I would say is that one of the things that we as practitioners need to do um, now with increasing amount of evidence coming out showing that sort of these intervisit IOP range or large intervisit IOP ranges are important in terms of progressive visual field loss, Um, what we need to do is we need to sort of assess that as a parameter. So what we don't do nowadays is we just look at what the IOP measurement is at the time when we're examining the patient and compare it to the one the last time or the one before or whatever. But what I think we need to do is not just look at what the level of IOP is, but we need to look at what the range is, what's happening to the range between visits. And is that range large, meaning six millimeters or more? If that range is large, even if the IOP at one particular time point appears to be controlled by whatever way you define control, um, then you need to reconsider treatment, meaning 
I think you need to then be more aggressive and find a way to decrease that intervisit IOP range. If that means adding another drug, if that means doing laser, if it means doing a surgery, that's fine. But whatever approach you need to, to take, you need to do it. The goal obviously has to be to decrease this intervisit IOP range and not wait until you see progressive damage um, and change in the optic nerve. If a patient naive to glaucoma medications presents to you, do you ever initially prescribe a topical beta blocker? Um, I don't anymore. Um, what I do now is essentially almost always I go with a prostaglandin analog. With regard to measuring intraocular pressure fluctuation and assessing its relevance to a particular patient, what do you do in your own practice? What should I do in my practice? I think what needs to be done, um, and we are just beginning to do it ourselves, is that you need to keep a running sort of tally, if you will, of the lowest IOP measure and then compare that has that you've noted in that eye in the patient over the past and then keep comparing it to the measurement that you see um, on the day when you're examining the patient. And so that you keep the sort of running tally, if you will, of what the range is. Now, if you see that the range is getting bigger, then you need to have much better control and be more aggressive and add additional drugs or add additional intervention. Um, if the range is pretty low and is well controlled, you know, two, three millimeters or so, then you're fine. Then I think it's, it's okay to keep, keep with the current uh, strategy that you ha have going and just keep um, track of what the range is so, so that if it goes out of control, you can begin to be more aggressive in your treatment of the patient. Rohit, is there anything else that you'd like to add? The um, only thing I would say is that, that there is go going to be evidence coming out in the future from the collaborative initial glaucoma treatment study, which is a large randomized trial of surgery versus medication, where um, data um, will be out soon on showing that this intervisit IOP range or the variation in IOP is uh, the most important parameter, most important intraocular pressure parameter that predicts progressive fetal loss um, in individuals. So, Rohit Varma, thank you so much. Sure, absolutely. Anytime. Rohit Varma is professor of ophthalmology and preventive medicine and director of the glaucoma service at the Keck School of Medicine, University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. His paper, Assessing the Efficacy of Latanoprost versus Timolol Using an Alternate Efficacy Parameter, the Intervisit Intraocular Pressure Range, appears in the August 2009 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Varma or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. 
As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.